One thing I've never done before is collaborate with two other pastors on a passage that all three of us are going to preach at the same time, same day, same bat channel. And that's what we're doing this week. And Rick's done that now once, and I've gotten to do this once, where I went on Thursday to a diner, pastor's got to meet around food, I guess, and um, we discussed the passage together, all three of us. And it was intriguing. We were supposed to be there from like 8 to 9.30, and we were ended up there from 8 to like well past 11. And part of that is because uh, the Bible is just an amazing thing when you start talking about it. The other part is that we just had great fellowship. It was wonderful to hear from Jim and how he had such great ideas and concerns of what the passage was doing here. And then from Larry as he was learning some things and bringing some elements into it. And I just asked questions the whole time. So it was a wonderful time that I got to spend with them. And I guess what I'm doing is kind of giving you an aside that uh, that I think is going to continue at some level, that camaraderie, that wonderful pastoral uh, connection that they have, uh, regardless of whether there's an actual official merge or not, um, all of that to be decided way down the road. The, the point is, is that uh, I've never experienced something like that previously, and it was a wonderful time to be able to kind of come across. And, and we actually had some minor disagreements in the pr- passage, which was really interesting as well, but nothing that changes anything majorly. It's really all uh, subjective at some level. This is supposed to be what's called a celebration Sunday, which is a time where we spend time praising the Lord and worshiping and uh, talking about his, his name and what he's done for us. And, um, and uh, if you guys have been with us to Graceway and have, have experienced what they do on those celebration Sundays, ours looks a little bit differently. Um, and so this message is supposed to be really short. Um, like 15 or 20 minutes long is what the other churches are doing. I'm going to shoot for that, uh, or maybe 25 at the most, especially because we have kids. I am the worst at speaking to kids with adults. I can speak to kids, I can speak to adults, but I have no idea how to speak to both. So unfortunately today, I'm going to speak to the adults, those smart kids of you that can hang in there, please do. The rest of you, I'm so sorry. I love you. Um, Do what you can. Uh, It just is what it is, okay? This passage is extremely simple. And yet so complex. It is, I think it's become almost one of my most favorite passages in all of the scripture because of how intriguing this is. Uh, I, I thought a few times as I went through this passage of John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, if you got your Bibles, uh, that this reminded me a lot of uh, what Josh does in writing fantasy novels, right? Um, if, 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 if Jesus was a fantasy novel writer, which he is not, he started here, like, and he puts so much stuff in here that you're kind of just scratching your chin and wondering what he's doing, and you're kind of excited about it, and because we have Genesis to the maps, we know how the story goes. They did not, but could you imagine the mind-blown emoji of the disciples as they looked back and realized all of the stuff that Jesus did through his three years of ministry and be like, wait a minute, is that what he was doing there? whoa, kind of concept. Kind of like what we saw with Nathaniel last week when Jesus was like, oh yeah, I saw you over the fig tree, right? And Nathaniel's like, wait, what? (laughs) You must be Jesus. Uh, That's kind of what I think John uh, does throughout his books. The next several chapters, all the way up till chapter 11, 12, he's talking about the signs. There's multiple miracles that Jesus goes through here. And a lot of this is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is all kind of John going at this, which is great because we wouldn't know it without him. Um, And so we get to what we understand to be the first sign of Jesus. The way we're going to do this today, and and because of our format, our third Sunday, we're going to spend time discussing the first and second Sundays. Today being the first, next week Rick will will preach. And then the third Sunday, we're going to uh, break up into small groups 
and discuss the passage in depth and in length. What I'm not supposed to do is reveal everything. I'm not supposed to apply everything so that they, there's left some on the table uh, for us then. So if you feel a little left wanting, like, ah, I wish we could have gone more there, wonderful. Come back in two weeks. It'll be great. John chapter 2. We're going to read the passage, verses 1 through 11, and then we're just going to go see the passage and be done. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 and 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out. Take it to the master of the feast. They took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now uh, the water now become wine. It did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This... The first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. If you've done devotions through the book of John and you've read this passage, at this point, at verse 11, you're ready to just move on. Okay, so Jesus took water, turned it into wine. If he spoke the world into existence, then this miracle is kind of small potatoes for him, right? So I go into verse 12. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And we're going to now move on to Jesus cleansing the temple, which is a great, fun story. We want to get into this place where Jesus goes all WWE on these guys, right? So we pass this passage because it seems to be kind of just like a no-duh situation. There is nothing no-duh about this passage. This is a phenomenal passage. I was blown away. Okay, let's go through it. On the third day, this is what does that mean, the third day? Is this having to do with the resurrection? Is this meaning Jesus, you know, it has nothing to do with that. This simply means that this is the third day after the last event. When was the last event? Well, we look back at, I think it's 43, and the next day, Jesus. But if you look back at 35, the next day, again, John, and 29, the next day he saw Jesus. And then he talks about, the point simply is, Jesus is giving you a chronological order. Cool part is, we know that this is now the seventh day in this chronological order, and seven days in total. This is a careful rendering of a timeline that John's bringing to us. And some say that these seven days are significant. Why was John giving us specifically the amount of days? Does it matter to us when it was? Not really. I think John was able to give such a good account of this timeline, very possibly because he was there. And you say, wait, what? John was there? How do you know? Does John get talked about in the first chapter? Do you see his name? <laughs> okay, good job. Apparently you know. He's not talked about in the first chapter. Why isn't he? Well, I kind of think he is. If you go back to, um, what is it, verse 35 of chapter 1. The next day again, John, that's the Baptist, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So two of John's disciples, those two disciples, heard him, that's John the Baptist, say that, and they followed Jesus. Rick preached on this a few weeks ago. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. What we find out very quickly is that one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was who? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
So we know one of the two disciples. What was the other disciple's name? Does the Bible say? No. Do we think we know who it is? Yes. It's John, the writer of this book. That's a really cool thing because he's telling us specifically about the days and the events that are coming. And so on that third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana is about nine miles away from Nazareth, just north of there. It's just a quick three-hour walk for them. Nothing huge. <laughs> this is what they did. No, no horses, no camels, no Ubers. And ultimately, they, they're already up there because if you recall, Jesus kind of went up there. Uh, verse 43, the next, in chapter 1, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, he was already up in the Galilee region, Canaan out far from there because it's in Galilee. So he's there. He had to be up there anyway for this wedding. Everybody knew the wedding was coming and Jesus was already going to up that direction, probably for the wedding. But that's also where Philip was in verse 43. Call it coincidence. I think it's divine uh, scenario and sovereignty at play. Verse 1, and the mother of Jesus was there. Interesting that John never says Mary. He says the mother of Jesus. And his whole book never says her name. Why is that? Some have conjectured. I think it just comes down to he doesn't want to confuse people with the other Marys that are involved in the process. But this is the mother of Jesus. And John is kind of pointing out that she is somewhat known as the mother of Jesus um, because we don't know where Joseph is. Where's Joseph? Why isn't Joseph at the wedding? Where is Joseph? Joseph's probably dead. Joseph's probably been dead a while now. We don't know exactly when that was. But what we see is that Mary is um, dependent on Jesus at this point. Jesus wasn't just the, the carpenter's son. He also became known as the carpenter. He was keeping the family floating at this point, right? So his mid-20s, late-20s. What is Jesus, the creator of this world, doing? He's building furniture. He can change water into wine. He can speak the world into existence, but he's going to take careful time of splitting the wood. Why can't he just go poof? Does he do that? Of course he does not. What's the point of that? To somebody who can speak a universe and the extent that we've looked at into existence, what does that mean to him? Is he like, oh, look what I can do. Is that what Jesus is? No, of course not. So miracles have a point. They're signs, really, is what they are. And that's what John refers to them as all the way through his gospel, that miracles aren't just to be cool. They have a purpose, and specifically a public purpose. It's to show at least one person, and in many cases multiple people, himself, his divinity, and to show his glory and to receive that glory. So the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding. That's interesting. And his disciples were invited to the wedding. So this tells us it's got to be a relative or a very, very close friend, right? Because have you ever had somebody come to your wedding and say, hey, plus six is fine. I'm good with that, right? That doesn't happen. You need to kind of know who's going to be there. So they specifically invited mother, Jesus, and his disciples. I don't know if you've ever invited somebody to your wedding and they had disciples. That's just a strange thing, right? So obviously these disciples knew these people who were getting married. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Mary was already there, because it says there, and the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary was there before Jesus was and his disciples. And what does that tell you? That most certainly she was involved in the preparations of the wedding. She was involved as maybe even the caterer or at least a help to the caterer. And so it's natural for Mary to be able to say, hey, there's no wine. I don't think it was on her. It wasn't her responsibility, but these are friends' relatives, and she certainly doesn't want shame brought, brought against the family here. Matter of fact, 
this was like, in their culture, like the worst possible thing you could do. There would be like murder and then not having enough wine at the wedding. Literally, it happens, and it's in history, that there were suits brought against the bridegroom's family for not providing enough food and wine at the wedding, brought by the bride's relatives, interestingly enough. So literally, he could have been under suit, let alone having people mock him. I mean, this is the running joke for the next however many years this guy lives, right? So this is a big, big thing. This isn't like, oh, we're just running out, guys. Mary's worried. What does Mary do? She runs to the one she knows it solves a lot of her problems, because when Joseph died, that was a very big thing, and some have said he left her. I highly doubt that, but we don't know. The Bible doesn't record it. So ultimately, we know that Jesus stepped up. Could Jesus step up in that occasion? Of course he could. He's the Savior of the world, or is to be the Savior of the world. Ultimately, Mary comes to the one that she knows can help the situation. Well, this is a large feast. If we've got this many people going on, there's a lot, a lot of people there. So when the wine ran out, Mother Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Why did she do this? Is it because she had seen Jesus perform, perform multiple miracles previously? When they didn't have food, was Mary like, hey, could you hook us up with like some lobster, Jesus? Like, did that happen? I don't think so at all, right? While we say this is the first sign, some have said this is not necessarily his first miracle. I don't see anything in Scripture, specifically when you look at the 40 days, 40 nights, when he's tempted, turning rocks into bread. He could have done it at any time. I don't think Jesus takes these things lightly. They're for a purpose. They're a sign. And he doesn't need a sign to himself. So when the wine ran out, and she comes and she says they have no wine, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, in our culture, if you responded to your mom as woman, let me say, Micaiah, don't refer to your mom as woman, like Jesus did to Mary, okay? She's not going to be happy. In our culture, this word, woman, to your mom would have been like, excuse me? He was not being disrespectful, but we, he was absolutely being uh, separating. He was separating her from him. She was coming to him as her son, you see. She knew him, and she knew what he was capable of to some degree. I mean, living a perfect life is kind of a thing. So ultimately, she comes to him hoping that he can perform in some way, somehow. And when the wine ran out, mother said, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, woman, what has this got to do with us? He wants to show her that he's not a magician. This isn't a thing that he is supposed to be doing. And then he qualifies it after rebuking her. It says, what does he say? My hour has not yet come. See, you read the whole story. Uh, for Josh, and I wrote this down for you because it's a really cool word. Um, it's called an uh, internal prolapsis, I think is what it's called. An internal prolapsis. And what it is, is it's a concept where he introduces this, where everybody kind of raises an eyebrow. What did he just say? It's not his hour? What does that mean? That's what would have happened here. Mary most likely would have been like, it's not your hour. Okay. We have no idea what that means. You know what it means. And John talks about it. And you're going to see as you go through the book about this hour, he's building up this theme where he finally reveals it. And what does Jesus say in the end? My hour has come. And he does that at his last breath on the cross. It's a really cool story to see. And it's not a story. It's a real life thing. It actually happened. It's not just something we're reading in a book. Ultimately, he says, this is not the time. Um, and she doesn't know what he's talking about, but 
she realizes the rebuke. She understands that he just made a separation. His mother says to the servants, my bad. Uh, I should have never asked him this. Oops. Sorry, Jesus. That's not what she says. What did she say? Do whatever he tells you. Now, at first glance, when I first read this, I thought, wow, there goes mom, <laughs> right? She's like, hey, you know what? Uh, we're out of wine. And Jesus is like, uh, woman, this isn't our thing. And then she's like, you guys do whatever he tells you. And then just kind of walks off, right? That's kind of what I first saw. Then I read D.A. Carson, and I was brought to tears. <laughs> I could not believe what happens here. You realize that Jesus comes to, or, or Mary comes to Jesus as a mother, saying, fix my problem. And then Jesus says, hey, I'm not a problem fixer, and there's a separation between us, and you no longer, for the past 30 years you have, but you no longer can come to me as your son. You're now going to learn to see me as your savior. She realized that her belief in him had to come as one who was a sinner. And she had to realize that it wasn't up to her as a mother telling the son what to do now, to ask him to accomplish something. She was now subservient to him. She still had the faith. She still believed, but she realized it was on Jesus' terms, not her own. This happens multiple times through the scriptures. I mean, one example is the Canaanite woman whose daughter is sick, and she runs after Jesus, and she says, uh, it's in Matthew, and she says, Lord, Lord, heal my... And the disciples keep hearing her screaming and yelling, and the disciples say to Jesus, hey, just tell her to go away. What does the lady do? She knows she's being mocked, most likely. She continues to pursue. She gets to Jesus' feet. She finally says, Jesus, would you please heal my daughter? And what does Jesus say? He doesn't send her away, but he says... Shouldn't I care for my own children? What do I have to do with you? Because there was that cultural divide. And she says, even the dogs eat at the table where the children eat. And what did Jesus say to that woman, the Canaanite woman? He said, great is your faith. She pursued, she continued, she kept. And Jesus rewards those who don't give up on the first try. The one thing I draw out of this is when you're struggling, when you have that trial, when the thing that you don't have answers for is constantly at the feet of Jesus, when do you quit? When you think it's time or when Jesus thinks it's time? Because he being the one in control, the one that can change your life at a moment's notice, knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for me. You bring the request, you ask for the provision, and he, in his perfect time, will bring the answer. That's what Mary is realizing in this moment. Do whatever he tells you. And she doesn't know what he's going to do. Is he going to make wine? Is he going to provide wine? Is he going to go to the store and buy wine? I don't know what Jesus is going to do, but I believe that he can. And he's going to do what he thinks is best. And I'm okay with that. Now there were six stones water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, verse 6. Each holding 20 and 30 gallons... Can you picture that in your mind? A huge stone jar? We're not talking made of tin. Stone jar that holds 20 to 30 gallons. These are buff dudes. That's huge. Have you ever picked up a five-gallon pail with your pinky? That's what these guys are probably doing if they're carrying around 20 and 30 gallons of stone jars. I'm not sure how they're moving these things, but these are huge. What are they? They're stone jars because they're crafted directly out of stone limestone that's available in the area, 
very different from the other jars. These are specifically purification stones. What are the purpose of? For the purification of the people, the rite of purification, specifically at weddings and other things. You don't drink out of these things. You purify yourself, not physically, not the sandals thing, but spiritually. This was an understanding of their religion, truthfully, that this was a way to receive spiritual purification in the midst of a ceremonial scenario. Here, Jesus is saying, go take the ceremonial stuff that we would normally separate and use for the purification of this ritual that we do and go fill it with normal well water. Because you know what they normally filled, or they always filled these with? It was called running water. The Jews believed that running waters, brook water, was clean and pure water because it was constantly moving. They also called it, believe it or not, living water. It's found in Hebrews, okay? Ultimately, this living water is what was filled in these stone jars. And Jesus is now saying, take this ritualistic thing that once was, go fill it with something that is different, and I'm going to make it brand new. He talks about, he tells the servants to go do it. What do they do? They fill it to the brim. Verses, uh, verse 7, right? Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. That's interesting why they did that. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. If you were one of these servants, would you be worried? You're probably thinking, well, this is the end of my catering career. So they took it. Now, the master of the feast is a guy that's typically just kind of in charge of it. Like in our case, sometimes it's like literally the, uh, the best man, like the guy that's running the show. This isn't some politician or mayor or anything like that, unless the bridegroom was well-placed. This is a guy that's kind of just in charge of the whole thing. So they draw it out. They bring it to the master of the feast. They took it, verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He didn't call Jesus because he didn't know. And what did he say to the bridegroom? Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, and that literally means inebriation, then the poor wine comes out next. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. What's interesting about these things is it kind of debunks some thoughts. A lot of people would say, well, this is not real wine, like fermented wine. Of course it is. It's definitely fermented wine. It's not wine that we speak of today, which has an ABV, which means alcohol content of 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that ballpark. This is diluted with water, usually three to four times, somewhere is up to 10, and it's probably about less than a beer, okay? So don't think that this is people just getting all sloshed and crazy, but they are at a feast. They are at a wedding, and they did run out pretty quick. So you make your own conclusions there, okay? Jesus knows what's going on in the crowd. Do you think he doesn't know what's going on in the crowd? Even the master of the ceremony said they have drunk freely. That clearly means that there are some people out there that likely ought to lay off. But Jesus made more wine anyway, okay? Why is he doing that? Because I believe Jesus is showing what was talked about in the Old Testament, a land flowing with wine. Ultimately, he knew that at this last supper, he was going to be offering something to the men that were at that table, saying, this is my blood, which is spilled for you. Remember this. Remember him saying that? This is the first foreshadowing of what is to come. Jesus is now saying the rites and the purifications of your old religion are now being changed. I am now going to change it into something that is living, that is new, that is refreshing, and that is the best. Because he kept the best wine till last. I don't know what vintage this is. This is Jesus' vintage. I certainly wouldn't mind trying that. And maybe someday we will. And I can't wait. It'd be awesome. In the end, Jesus is showing here 
to only a few people, his salvation to come and his glory. Who are the people who saw it? Mary, the servants, and the disciples. That's it. There's nobody else who knows about this. And I don't know what happened after the wedding. If the servants went up later, like three weeks later, it's like, hey, by the way, about that wine. We don't know what happened there. But we do know what happened here. The bridegroom announced to everyone else is the one who received the glory. And that was the way Jesus wanted it. It wasn't supposed to be some miraculous, okay, three years of ministry now. That's not the way Jesus did it. He brought it to his people. He brought it to his mom. He showed her the difference of the separation between where he was and where she was and how she was going to have to stand before him as a sinner saved by grace. He showed his disciples that he's the real deal. These are guys that are just started walking with him. They're just starting to get to know him, right? And ultimately, he showed these servants who we don't know what happened with them. We don't know that it was a saving faith yet. Maybe someday it is, but ultimately they saw that. We move on, verses uh, 10. And he said to them, everyone serves a good wine first. You serve the, the good wine last. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee, and he manifested, he showed, he proclaimed his glory. Who did he proclaim it to? And his disciples believed in him. Jesus showed himself a glimpse, and it wasn't because it was a magic trick. The disciples, the, the understanding, and I can't get in because of time, but ultimately, this belief is a salvific belief, I believe. This is a belief that say, this is him who is foretold of. This isn't like, a, oh, I believe he can make water into wine. This was a belief of he is the Messiah. He is Emmanuel. In verse 12, it says he went down to Capernaum, and we'll talk about that next week, and what he goes into the cleansing of the temple. What are we to conclude from this? Well, I'll give you a couple basic ones. Remember, I'm not supposed to go too far. Um, I think we can conclude that we can't come to Jesus on our own terms. Even his mother wasn't allowed to do that. And we have a whole religion today that glorifies her as if she's the woman. Clearly, we see Jesus saying she's not. We don't pray through Mary to Jesus. Jesus is to be prayed to directly. We come to him directly. There's nobody that's in between him. He is come to directly. He uh, is to be believed on in his terms, not ours. Not, uh, Lord, would you save me from this bad thing and then I'll live for you forever. That's not what Jesus wants. Jesus never asked you to just cry out in a moment of significant weakness or threat, and then I will be your savior. He's looking for one who repents, who believes, and who does it with a heart in, uh, that sees him as Lord. And uh, we see a difference, I think, between the servants and the disciples here. The servant seeing a trick in some ways, and, uh, and it doesn't speak ill of them, but it doesn't speak positively either. We see that the disciples believe, not the servants, and I think that's interesting. They had been hanging with him a little bit more, obviously. They knew, and Jesus was now showing his glory. This was the first time in all of Scripture that we can recognize that God is showing public glory to Jesus. Is Jesus worthy of glory if he's a man? The answer is no. No man is worthy of glory. Only God is. And so here we start seeing that God is putting down uh, uh, his, if you will, thumb of approval to the people. Not that he approves of Jesus, but ultimately so that the people can understand who this Messiah is. We're going to see Jesus continue to do this type of stuff all the way through the book of John. This is the first taste of it, no pun intended. And ultimately, um, 
we're going to be able to glorify him together as we go through these chapters and see this culmination of starting off with such a, what seems to be a small miracle, but really is a defining event for his mom and for those first five disciples that are following him. And, uh, and as we, as we work through the rest of this, we're going to see how Jesus builds this up into the multitudes and then ultimately to the world. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture. And Lord, I pray that we would understand like Mary understood. That we would come to you the way you've asked us to come. By faith, with a heart that's fully dependent and surrendered. Desiring nothing for ourselves in a selfish way. Knowing that you're in control. Father, you've asked us to come with our difficulties and our griefs, and we do. Father, I pray that you would continually show us your work in our life so that we have milestones to be able to point back and say, there is God, there is God. Lord, I know that you're perfect and you know the best way to do it. Father, there are hurting people in this room. There are people that don't know what the next step is, that difficulties, physical frustrations, relationship issues, money problems, job scenarios are out of our control, Lord. I pray that we would bring it back to you in a way that says, Lord, I trust you. I know you're going to do what's best. I know that you can give me what I need. I know you can heal me. I know that you can change me. I know that you can fix that relationship. But I also know that you're going to do what's best. Father, I pray that we would see that transformation in the way we approach you, as Mary did in this passage. Father, thank you for your son, his glory, his amazing humility to slowly and carefully, surgically insert himself into the history of mankind so that we can see his glory slowly for us dumb, selfish, sinful idiots. What an amazing idea of God coming to earth. And God, thank you for sending him. Thank you for allowing him to die. Thank you that he stayed and that he gained victory over death so that we can freely speak about it today and have a hope that lies within us that we share with others. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.